we were marketers, kind of got a feel for marketing and what, what it took to market. And that's what became exciting to us is just, you know, we were just relentless. I think out of necessity, just became savvy marketers. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huber. You're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Dan Caldwell. How you doing, man? Good, brother. How you doing? Good. Good to have you on. Yeah, so, good to be on. Yeah, always like to start. So trying to think, that did you come out of the womb, like love the fight scene, going to make the first apparel line? Like, I like to take it back. Like, let's from the top. Where were you born? Where are you from? How did it all start? No, I mean, I think I always had kind of the entrepreneurial bug. You know, I used to charge my friends. To, I'd throw a circus inside my garage and charge my <laughs> friends money to come play games. And I did a magic shock. And then in, in junior high, I started a DJ company and started DJing all the schools in the area, all the junior highs, all the high schools. And where know, was this? Where were you from? So I grew up in San Bernardino, which is like okay, uh, cool. about an hour outside of LA, not too far. Yep. But we grew up in a really bad neighborhood. So I had a really good family upbringing, but we just lived in a bad place. And, Got it. Uh, you know, but we never felt like we were in danger and trouble, but we've been in shootouts in front of our house and my mom's been mugged in front of our house and all yep. our cars have been stolen. Our house has been broken into multiple times. So it was just, it was kind of just a normal occurrence, just what happened, but I didn't think too much of it. And then coming out of high school, I actually wanted to be a police officer. So I kind of started down that route. And huh. so I'm curious, friend, like. Just to take a step back and on the beginning of that, how were your parents influential in like all of this, like the circus, the DJing, like, where do you think that came from? You know, I'm not sure. I think part of that was girls. You know, I was like, sure. we were in, in junior high. I remember seeing this group called Randy and Andy come in and they were DJs. They were a little bit older, high school guys. And I just remember everybody giving them attention. You know, the, it was like they were rock stars. Yep. And so we were just trying to think, how could we do that? And so... One day we went to this small school, this little prep school, and uh, I, my parents waited for like three days to get me into this school. They had to sleep on the streets, like to literally wow. get me in the school. And I ended up getting kicked out in eighth grade. <laughs> but, but it was a, uh, you know, I mean, they tried, and they were. And what got, got you kicked? I'm, I gotta ask, what got you kicked out? <laughs> Oh, it was not. I mean, I don't know. You know, I think, well, what happened was I gave the one of the teachers the bird, but I didn't <laughs> even know what it was at the time. Like, I don't think I knew what I was doing. Yeah. I, just, I did it because I saw some friends do it. Yeah. And when she turned, she got mad at me when she turned around, I flipped her the bird and, and then it turned out, I didn't know what I did, <laughs> but somebody saw me. So I get you. So you got expelled for flipping your teacher the bird. Yeah, I definitely you I used the words to my teacher when I was in high school and <laughs> I got sent to the principal's office, but I did not get kicked out. Yeah, well, this is like a prep school. It was like, yeah. you know, it was at, at will school. So if they didn't like you, you they, just, yeah. they had like a demerit system and they basically demerited me right out because I already had wow. like 20 or 30 years for something else. And so it just yeah. put me over the top. Yeah. But, got it. Uh, 
Yeah, it was, a, it was it was a small little school, but they didn't have the money to pay for a DJ. So they, in one of the morning announcements, they asked if anybody knew any DJs that could do a school dance. Yep. And we were like, us, we could do it. And we didn't have any DJ equipment or anything. We didn't even, <laughs> we didn't have anything. We didn't know what a DJ did really, but we just assembled my parents' turntable and my friends' turn. So they weren't like real turntables like everybody yeah. else. You know, te- everybody's using Technique 1200s and yep. we're using like these big wooden case turntables. <laughs> Yeah. That we had hooked up to my friend's amplifier and we went out and bought a bunch of albums. And <laughs> actually for our first one, we made a tape of the whole thing because we didn't think we could actually do all the mixing good. Yeah. So we just made a tape and we played like we de- were DJing the whole time. But we really <laughs> so basically what happened, yeah, what half of DJs do these days, you hit play and yeah. dance a lot. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Hands are up a lot. Yeah. 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 Talking to girls <laughs> over here, you know, it was, it was fun. And so we just, once we realized that we were getting all this attention, we were like, we got to keep doing this. Yeah. So all through high school, we just kept buying equipment. We ended up having a really good equipment. We had, we had the best lighting systems in the area. Mm-hmm. smoke systems and big, huge lighting system and crazy speakers, stack speaker system. So we were probably the most equipped company in the place. And so we were getting all the dances. I was going to say, so you did the school dance, you kind of scrappily threw it together, but then you started getting other paid gigs. That's how that built out. Right, right. We just, you know, I was making a hundred dollars an hour for any, any dance. And we get a little, I think we got 30 minutes to set up and 30 minutes to break down. So it was, yeah. if it was a two hour dance, you had a three hour, you know, three, you were making yeah. 300 bucks. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And so how long did you do that for? When did you, how long did you do uh, we, we got rid of our stuff at, in high school. Mm-hmm. Or right after high school. So I just okay. like, kind of got out of it after high school. I decided yep. I wanted to be a police officer at that point. So, yeah. So tell me about that. How, what made you want to be a police officer? I took an elective class and I didn't know until I took this side teacher was teaching the class and uh-huh. they talked about the coolest stuff, chasing bad guys and cars and foot pursuits and yeah. all kinds of cool stuff. I just said, I, I want to learn how to do that. So they actually said something about the Explorer system, you know, like you could go be a police explorer. So I went and signed up like that week and yeah. became this explorer. And yeah, I mean, I'm literally, I'm driving around with police cars and we're in vehicle pursuits and chasing bad guys. And I'm like, uh, I'm you signed me up for this. So I signed up and next thing I know, you know, I'm a police officer. And so how long were you officer in, out in San Bernardino still, right? Right. Yeah. So I was there for about seven years. And actually wow. what happened was right out of high school, I got hired as a security guard for a high school. And the guy who was showing me the ropes happened to be my partner in tap out. So we oh. met each other there. He sh- he was showing me the ropes. He's like 10 years older than I was. And so I learned all the ropes from him and we just became best friends during that time. And we just started talking all the time. We were training. He was coming from Taekwondo. I had trained in Taekwondo and boxing. So I was kind of showing him some boxing stuff and he was showing me some kicks and we just had a good time. It was just, we enjoyed being around each other and and were you in on the boxing side from a, like a young age or when did you start getting into? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't great or anything. I just had taken boxing when I was growing up. So I knew enough, just enough to get me in trouble. You know, yeah. it wasn't like I, if I stepped in the ring with any real boxer, I was going to get smashed, but, but I, I knew how to, you know, I knew hands and uh, knew a little bit about, you know, footwork and so i was showing him some footwork stuff he was showing me some footwork stuff and then we just practiced on i had a heavy bag at my house yeah. so I, he would come over to my house and i was living with somebody i was living with a police officer actually and he was he was showing me all the heavy bag or he was showing me his kicks and i would show him some hands and nice. it was just a good trade-off 
Nice. And so you, was that the period before you joined the police force was when you were a security guard? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I was, so we were security guards and I just talked to him. I was like, Hey, what do you think about being a police officer? I'm thinking I want to go, you know, try out and apply for law enforcement. I wasn't old enough yet at the time and because I was only 19, you had to be 21. So to go through, you had to finish the academy when you were 21. So you had to be at least be 21. So I was waiting a, a little bit, but I told him that. And he said, yeah, yeah, it sounds like a, you know, like that be, might be kind of cool. And we were kind of like a team. So we'd go bust all these guys, you know, we'd, we were pulling guns off people and all kinds of taggers and all kinds of stuff, you know, during, and it was just fun. It was just dealing with a bunch of kids. And the truth is in San Bernardino, those kids are gangbangers, you know, and they're, so a lot of them were in gangs. And so it wasn't, it was dangerous. It was dangerous stuff. We're walking around with just pepper spray on us and having to deal with these guys with guns. And so we got into, you know, some wrestling matches over guns and knives. And when guys were fighting, you know, trying to pull those guys down, it was interesting and it was fun. Yeah. No, I mean, that prepped you being a police officer. I would say you get into the police academy and get into, you know, serving as an officer. You've already got a ton of that experience. That's interesting. Probably, is that usual that people are coming in with that? Yeah, not really. I mean, unless they were like the reserves, you know, so lots of, there were a lot of reserves that would eventually be police officers. Got it. So they would, they would be a reserve police officer and then they would apply for full time. Yeah, that makes sense. And so you were, you did that for seven years, like just kept your head down. And what, what were you doing as a police officer? Like what? What kind of position were uh, you stationed at? No, I was in, I was on patrol, and so okay. I was I was patrolling the area and in my city, and you know, getting into doing a bunch of arrests, you know, making the paper, lots of pursuits, and I, I was a busy guy. I was trying to stay busy. I was the one guy. We had a small SWAT team, so whenever they needed a uniformed officer for that SWAT team, they'd always pick me because I was hungry. You know, I was yeah. out there chasing chasing stuff. I was very proactive, yeah. and uh, so I'd always I, I was friends with. Most of the good guys, the active guys, the guys that stayed busy. Yeah. And did you like, I'm curious, why not go SWAT or any of that? Like, did you just Well, not- I would have gone farther, but what happened, so what kind of gave me the sour taste for law enforcement is when I started, it was fun and I was, I was enjoying it. But as you start to kind of get into it, get comfortable, you start to realize that, you know, you go, you get into it to do good and you start to realize it gets a little sideways. <laughs> There's my- Life. <laughs> and, Doing a great job. <laughs> uh, and uh yeah, yeah, she she's gonna jump in here. And uh so you know, you get into it to do good with people and try to help people. You know, I, I hated bullies in high school and you know, I got bullied, so I hated bullies and wanted to fix those things, you know, wanted to help the people who couldn't help themselves. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, you know, it doesn't long sometimes law enforcement isn't about the, all that. And it it feels like it's, there's a lot of gray space, I should say. And, you know, there's people that are either trying to do good and maybe they got tickets and their license is suspended. And now you got to tow their car when you pull them over. And now because they lose their car, they're going to lose their job. And because they lose their job, they're going to lose their house and they're going to lose their family. And so you're yeah. doing things that you're like, you wish you had more choices. You wish you could control it and do better for people. And sometimes it just doesn't always feel like that. Yeah. Got it. And so did you end up just walking away from it out of that frustration? Like what happened? Yeah, no. So uh, yeah, I got sideways and uh, I ended up on the wrong side of the gate. And it was a very political city. And they forced out the mayor and forced out the captain. And they were, and these two sides kind of took sides while I was on the wrong side of that fence when that happened. And so they started coming down on me and they ended up kind of threatening me. So I quit 
and got out of it. And I was trying to go get a job at, a, at another police department. It was having a lot of problems because of that situation, because I had gone through some stuff with them. And then I finally got hired on a police department that I didn't want to be at. And I just said, you know, I'm started. So my eyes are out now. Now I'm thinking I'm going back to being an entrepreneur. I'm thinking like that again. I'm kind of looking for something. And about that time, well, before that time, actually, we started training with the Gracies right after the first UFC. And so we were still, I was still training with them at the time. And my partner came to me when I was working at that other police department. And he said, Hey, do you want to, do you want to start a t-shirt company? And I was like, really? Like a t-shirt company, like, you know, based around mixed martial arts and, and jujitsu. And so we started talking it out and it was just every day he would come over and we would talk it out. Cause it was, it was kind of a, a slow paced job. It was at a college, you know, so it was a college police department. Ah, okay. So we would just talk through it. He'd come sit at my you know office and we'd just talk about it the whole time. And, and pretty soon I just said, okay, let, yeah, let's do that. And uh, eventually we started this company small. And Yeah, so what did this uh, start with? Like, did you like have a couple of designs, ordered some shirts, printed it and started exactly. out of exactly. the trunk kind of thing? Yeah, we were selling at small events and we'd throw a table down and throw some shirts up on the table and just sell, sell at those events. Eventually I became... Once we saw that work, I started flying all over the country selling at these different events because it became kind of a way for us to infiltrate different area hot zones yep. that mixed martial arts was hot. And with and the events, was it mostly like MMA matches, that kind of thing? MMA and, and jujitsu. So okay. anytime there was jujitsu tournaments, not all of them, but we were trying to mostly do MMA events. But back then it was called No Holds Barred or NHB. Uh -huh. It was before they picked up the MMA term. That was more of a sports yeah. term. So we used No Holds Barred. So all these events were popping up all over the country. And I would throw all my clothes in a bin, throw two banners on top and fly out to this event. I'd pay them like 400 bucks for the table, 500, 600 bucks for the table and sell our clothes there. And we'd make just enough money usually to you know, to buy more clothes and grow a little bit. And it just kept working out. It was a way for us to really get out there. We called it throwing hand grenades. <laughs> so we called it throwing hand grenades because it was, that was our way of marketing, getting clothes in different areas. I was flying to Hawaii and I'd fly to Indiana. I'd fly, fly back and we'd drive to Phoenix for another show. And then, you know, we we're just all over the place. Yeah. And so, I mean, as you said, you were still like, it was getting enough to get by, so to speak, and order more clothes. But did you feel like it was an immediate, like, this is going to be something big or like the first batch of clothes you ordered, your first run to go well, or was there a little friction? I'm curious. I'm, I'm always curious how it starts. Too. Well, it was, you know, there's always, it's really hard when you're growing. People don't understand some of this when you're growing. And I didn't understand at the time for sure that we had to, we're buying inventory. And as you start to create more SKUs and as you're growing, we were growing 300%. I think I can literally remember our first year we made $29,000. Mm -hmm. That was actually our second year. Our first year we were kind of off books, but our second year we made 29,000 bucks. Yeah. Then we made 100,000 and then we made 300,000 and then we made 900,000. So it oh, was like, trip one. yeah, I mean, we were doing like that 300% growth every year. And when you're growing that fast, all your money has to go back into inventory. And so you don't understand why you don't have money yeah. because you're like, why are we making $900,000 a year, which was more money than I'd ever made in my life. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm not even close and I don't have a penny, you know, yeah. not even a penny. I can't even pay my rent. 
Yeah. And I'm driving a thousand dollar van back and forth from LA to San Bernardino and not even enough money to put gas in my tank. Yeah. And it was because we had so much money tied up in inventory. Right. And, you know, eventually we got a small warehouse. We had cost of the warehouse and cost of advertising and selling yep. at these events and driving in gas and driving to Vegas and making flyers. And it was just, you know, it's always your, you have so much money outgoing. Yeah. That there's no money in your pocket. Where are you? And so and we how, figure that out. How were you able to get by with that? Like, what were you just, you just made it work like it was paper thin, but made it work. Yeah. I mean, we just realized we decided to make more money <laughs> and either small margins that you do have, you know, like yep. let's say whatever it is, 2% or whatever yep. that small margin is, as you get bigger, that becomes 3%. That's 5%. You know, eventually it just gets bigger too. Yeah. So we did eventually have a little extra money and I can remember a few years into it, four, four years into it, we were finally able to like, okay, I'll pay your rent and my rent and then we'll like have an extra 500 bucks you know that we were yeah. just paying each other's rents and put an extra 500 bucks in our pocket but i was still so working just to clarify four years into business you finally could pay yourself 500 bucks on top of rent right yeah yep. oh and so you were still working i was still working at about till let's see about yeah about four years into it i quit as, still as a police officer at the college mm-hmm nice Got it. Oh, I always actually, love this. I got a second job too. So I was working at a casino as a police officer too, one of wow. the uh, tribal police officers that they have there. And I think that's super important. I, I get calls all the time and I'm sure you do too about like, you know, everybody gives this advice of like, you just got to leap, you got to go for it. And it's like, you, you can also make it happen while you have a day job and grow it and grow it until it really makes sense to take that leap. But a lot of people think like they have an idea and they have to quit their job to build it. And it's like, no, you can yeah. get used to working really, really, really hard. Cause I'm sure like once you're able to quit, now you have all this time, you're able to just skyrocket it, assuming where it went. So yeah. Yeah. My my partner actually quit about a year into it. He yeah. was having some problems with some situations that he had got into and he was he was pretty hands-on. And so sometimes you deal with guys. He was working in the jails. And so he he ended up getting in some situations. And one day he just see he calls me and he goes, Yeah, they called me in the office and started drilling down on me about some situation, about some guy who spit in my face, and I took care of him. And so I I threw my badge on the table and said, have a nice life and took off. So uh, he's yeah. like, you have to support the business now. <laughs> I was like, oh, I thought I was going to quit soon. He's like, no, nah, brother, you have to stay working. Wow. So I stayed working. So, and I was using basically my paycheck to pay for fighters. So like guys we were sponsoring, yeah. you know, like three, five, a thousand dollars is usually 300, 500 and a thousand. That was bit like the numbers we usually paid sometimes 800 or whatever, but we usually paying fighters about that. And so I was having to use my paycheck to be able to pay those guys. So I can remember guys that we had to drag out like a year to actually pay them because we couldn't pay them all up. And we, we took these guys, our first fighters in the UFC cost us 2,500 bucks. And it was because one was fighting for a title, Pat Miletic and Jeremy Horn was fighting too. So we had to, I think I pulled some off a credit card and then like 500 bucks off a credit card. And then the 2000, I literally paid over like a year or two. Got it. And so when you ended up quitting, is it, am I right in terms of what I was saying? Like you, you got out of it after four years, you went, this is something full-time. Is that about the time you said you were able to pay yourself 500 bucks and you're like, that's it. I'm done. Like I'm going to full bore with this or like what triggered that big leap, so to speak. The quit, I think it was just, it, it was time that the, one of the things that happened was because I was a, a, a police officer, because I've been a real 
patrol police officer before I was working outside in the casino. Uh And uh, I think I got on some guy a little bit and I kind of got in trouble. They didn't like it. You know, I, I ended up getting in a fight with this guy who I can't remember what happened exactly, but they ended up uh, bringing me inside. They were trying to bring me inside. And I was like, I'm not going in that casino for one day. And that day I just, I quit. I just never showed up. I was like, I called them and said, eh, I'm not going in that casino. It was, it was so smoky and yeah. I just didn't like the whole That's idea. That's literally in my head went, it's the smoky of an S of a casino. No, don't want to live yeah. in that. Yep. So as soon as they said, uh, you have to go in the casino, I'm like, nah. So I'm curious, like that, those four years, you're taking all of your job income, your day job income and putting it into this and putting it into fighters. It's not necessarily making the returns yet because it's all being reinvested. So you're not seeing any money. You're just losing money on this thing in some senses. Like, did you have a vision that this was going to be big and you felt confidence or were you just passionate about like, where did that like conviction come from? Yeah, I think uh, sometimes when you're really onto something and you know, I've only had that a few times in my life, but when you're really onto something, you just feel it in your gut. Like this is going to be big. Like I know it. I feel it in my bones. People don't know it yet, but I know it. I know this is going to be huge. And we used to explain it to like, I mean, imagine fighting at that time, you know, it was watching the UFC, people had never seen anything like this before. And I just think we're naturally attracted to it. Uh You know, it's something that like if you're at your favorite concert, and you're watching whoever that is on the stage, and then some girls over here taking her clothes off or whatever, and then a fight breaks out to your left, everybody's going to the fight. I don't care what else is going on around there. That's a really good point, actually. Yeah. It's just like everybody, and that we used to use that analogy all the time. We'd, we'd talk to people like that when investors or whoever it yeah. might be. And they were like, wow, where would you even think of something like that? You yeah, know? but it's but, fair. But it's- to us, it was true. You know, it was like, yeah. that was, this is going to be huge. It's going to be the biggest thing on the planet. Yeah. And you guys just don't see it yet. But I'm telling you, like, we no one's ever seen anything like this. Everybody we showed it to, they were just super excited about watching it again or becoming part of it. Yeah. Even the jujitsu, everybody I'd ever introduced, I can remember introducing several friends to jujitsu and they all of a sudden they're like training full time. You know, it's like everybody wanted to train in it. Once you train in it, you didn't want to stop. It became their yep. life. And so I think with just those two things, we just thought this is a culture now. This is going to be, you know, it's going to be a mainstay and it, and it's going to be a part of our culture in the United States or maybe all over the world. Yeah. So we're betting on that. Got it. Makes sense. And then some billionaires bought it in 2001. And that really, <laughs> that really gave us the gas. And I was gonna say, what was the time frame pre Twitter? Like, when did you, what year did you start it? So we started in 97. Okay. So you were, so, oh, so it was literally like right after you quit your job. Some Well, 97, 98, and then 99, we went on books. So 99 is our first year that we actually own books. And when you quit to go in full time, what year was that? 2002 or three. Oh, so you had investors by the time you were ready to do it. No, we didn't. We never took on investors until 2006. Oh, I thought you said 2001. No. Oh, no. They bought the UFC. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. A couple billionaires bought the UFC in 2001, which was Dana White and his partners, right? The Fertitas. Yeah. And when they bought it, we just knew it was game over. I mean, they, the first day they bought it, you know, first of all, we were friends with the previous UFC owners. And we were kind of getting some stuff. Was that the Gracies? No, no. Okay. So, well, the Gracies originally started, Horion and Art Davies started it back in 93. Got it. Then Bob Marowitz 
bought it from them when it was having some problems. It just wasn't getting on television. They could, they were having problems legally. And Bob Merowitz, who'd had a television career in the past, uh, that person for TV, thought he could do something with it. And so he thought he could get on television. He ended up having a hard go at it. He was having an uphill battle the whole time. And when Dana White heard that the guy might want to sell it, he talked to the Fertitas and they came in 2001 with a $2 million offer and bought the UFC. Not bad. Cause I know what did sell to uh, WME for 3 billion. Yeah. Yeah. Three or not 4 bad. billion. Yeah. Yeah. Not a bad return. No, <laughs> a nice so, return for sure. Yeah. So you, you, that happens a year later, you quit to start going full time into this as it's taking off. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, I meant, just, one quick question. Where did the designs come from? Like, where did you get? We just hired there? artists. We, I mean, I, I couldn't, we were not shirt guys. I, I to yeah. this day, if you put me in a print shop, I couldn't print a shirt for you. Yeah, I wouldn't know where to start. I, yeah. I'm not. We've never printed a shirt in our lives. That's not what we were. We were marketers. Yeah. We kind of got a feel for marketing and what what it took to market, and that's what became exciting to us is just getting fine. You know, we were just relentless. I think out of necessity, just became savvy marketers trying to make every penny work. You know, it's like we'd pay some guy $300 to wear it in the UFC, and so instead of putting a little logo like some people would. We, we can, so you remember this like insurgence of giant logos. I I gotta believe we came up with that because I mean, we were, it came out of necessity for us. It was like, we want people to see our logo when they're walking into the UFC. So we started making our logos this big, you know, the entire size of the shirt. So a logo that you might've stuck on the back at that time, we put on the front because we knew that's what you would get, you would see as they were walking in. And so that's the shirt that we started giving to all our fighters. Well, we weren't selling that shirt online. The the online shirt had a little tiny logo like this. Well, everybody started asking for this big logo. So we started making those shirts and selling them to people. And the next thing I know, that kind of took off that whole whole large logo. That's awesome. And it is just as simple as listening to your customer. They start asking. It's like, yep, sure, we can do that. <laughs> yep. They wanted what they saw the fighters wearing. You yeah. Know? And that's, we knew that they would want to emulate the fighters. So, you know, it's like with anything. That's with, you know, social media marketing today. If you have, you know, these micro influencers or large influencers, whatever it is, they have an audience that's watching them and, and they want to be them. And so, or they want to do what they're doing. So when you see, when they're, whatever they're doing, representing the food that they drink, the makeup that they use, whatever that is, their audience are being influenced by that. And the same thing we knew with this, they wanted to be the fighters and we that we knew that those shirts would sell. Yep. And Somebody so, in here. yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> so you end up building it. So what, give me the time frame, 2002 to 2006, like you, you're now full-time growing this thing. Like, what was that like? I would love to hear more about it. Yeah, I mean, we were just, it was growing end over end 300% a year traveling. Oh, so all that over continued, the place. It went to 900 grand and then kept going 300%. Yep. Yep. Oh. And in 2006, the ultimate fighter came and it kind of just changed the landscape for us. You know, we still had no money at that time. I remember jumping in a van when Charles called me one day and said, Hey, they're about to film the ultimate fighter in Vegas. Chuck just called me and said, he's one of the coaches on it. And we'd heard rumblings about this television show coming. And so we drove out there that night and with a bunch of clothes, with our whole van full of clothes, all these clothes and different sizes and everything that we had put together real fast. And we started sleeping on Chuck Liddell's couch inside of his apartment that they had given him to, <laughs> to live in. Did you just know Chuck from being in that scene? For- he was one of our fighters at the time. Yeah. So we were sponsoring him in the UFC. 
And it, the funny thing is he wouldn't take our money. Like he knew we were like struggling, you know, yeah. and we would pay him. We'd I think we were paying him about 2000 bucks or something like that. A thousand bucks, maybe thousand bucks. And he wouldn't cash our check. Yeah. He was, that's how cool a dude he is. You know, he just, we, he wouldn't even cash our check, but awesome. uh, so he told us when this, the show was starting and we would go there and sleep on his couch. We'd wash his clothes for him for like in exchange for letting him let yeah. us sleep there. But we'd only wash his tap out stuff. So he'd have all this tap out gear ready to wear every day. <laughs> and then at, in the middle of the night, we'd go to the place where we knew they were filming and we would stuff our shirts inside of the little mail slot that they had. You know how those doors at the yep. those offices where they have a little mail slot in them? Yep. And we just we'd stuff one shirt and then have to grab another shirt. Yeah. stuff it in there until it fit through yeah we just shove it in the mail slot every night until uh, for about three weeks and uh, and while they were filming the show hoping that somebody would get one of those shirts and wear it on the tv show and then i it was interesting the producer said oh that no tap out ever got in the show we had to make sure no tap out was in there because we were looking to get sponsors and we didn't have any so we weren't paying for it if you watch the show you'll see lots of tap out in there it's because we were sliding it in there wherever chuck was giving it to his fighters yeah. we we're sliding it in the mail slot we had fighters had walked in with it you know it was just all kinds of ways just slide it in there and so at that ultimate fighter, I think it was in 2006, we were at that event at the Cox Center in Las Vegas at the UNLV. And I can remember my, the Stefan Bonner fight, Stefan Bonner and Forrest Griffin, which is still one of the greatest fights in history there in the UFC, ever in the UFC. I can tell him, hey, there's 10 million people watching this fight right now. And I didn't know this. We were sponsoring the event and the UFC had given us the opportunity to like trade clothes to actually be on the mat because we didn't have enough money to, to give them at the time. Yeah. And so we had trade them like $3,000 worth of clothes and they put our logo on the mat. Well, what I didn't know was they had put our logo on, you know, like this, this is brought to you by Budweiser. Yeah. Well, they were doing that for us. They're the this title sponsor. By Tap Out. Yeah. yeah. And so that night, my, or as the fights were going on, my website guy called me and said, Hey, what the hell are you doing? Your website has crashed. Like you're getting like 3000 orders an hour. What's going on? You know, why, why don't you tell me what's going on? Yeah. And I said, well, we're at an event and we're sponsoring it. And I guess it's live. I guess some sales are, he goes, not some sales brother. He goes, you're doing 3000 orders an hour. Like yeah. <laughs> it's real. Thousands of sales are coming through right now. Yeah. And so we walked out of there and we didn't know this, but our life would never be the same again because we, as soon as we got home, I literally had to get into game mode. Our credit card companies were shutting us down. I had to obtain two leases for the two places next to us just to find room yep. to, you know, to figure out what was going on. Because were you we're still there. operating in San Bernardino too? Yeah, we were in a place called Grand Terrace, which is a yep. small city outside of Grand Terrace, San Bernardino there. Got it. Nice. And so I'm curious, like before that hit, like what was your 2005 revenue? Do you remember? 2005, you know, it's become such a blur over the years. I'm, I'm, I want to say it's like, it was like 3 million or somewhere okay. around there, give or take. Yeah. So you're a $3 million business and then boom, you're doing thousands of orders a day. Could be 30 to 50 bucks average order. So you're making, yeah, $15,000 a day all of a sudden. Yes. And that's and with a crash. If it wasn't crashed, it would have been more. Well, what he said was, hey, look, we're going to have to just capture the credit cards right now, yeah. but we're not going to be able to process them. So yeah. I said, okay, that I said, that's good because I, want, I didn't want to lose an order, right? But what yeah. I didn't realize is at that time, we didn't have an, an inventory system in place. Yeah. So if it sold it, it just sold it. You know, it's yeah. like 
it didn't matter that we didn't have it in stock. It just sold it. Yeah. And we were going to have to enter every single credit card by hand. So, yeah. you know, remember those old credit card machines with little yeah. buttons on top? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Every single one of them had to be entered by hand on those things. Yeah. And so we had to employ, we were just employing everybody we talked to. Like we'd go to, we'd go to a restaurant and be like, oh, this girl seems to be working good. Hey, do you want to come work for us? And we just hire yeah. them right out, right out of the restaurant. Good way to do it. Yeah. That's awesome. And so you sold right away, it sounds like, because in 2006, when you also ended up selling the company or no? No, we sold in 2010. Oh, okay. So, so you built off of that for a while. Yeah. Uh, and so you expanded, you've got the two places next to you. You were hiring every waiter and waitress that you liked and just bringing them in. So when did you feel like you caught up? How long did it take before you felt like you got the operation under you? Well, it was always like an out of control bull, you know, that was a, that we were just trying to catch up with until 2008 happened. Then it, everything kind of slowed down. Oh, it did. Okay. So you but, guys were affected by it. But we were, I mean, we were still huge at the time and there's yep. still commerce going on. It just made us sit back and slow things down a little bit because you sure. didn't want to be stuck holding the hot potato at that point. Right. You know, too much inventory or too many yep. employees or whatever. So we just had to like control that situation. But we fared fairly well that for the times, you know, a lot of people having a lot worse time than we were. Yeah, but, uh, but I mean, because the UFC was exploding still, it was right. just out of control. I mean, it was growing and there, it was, you know, the fighters, it was, they had, they had great fighters at the time. They were getting a lot of exposure at the time and MMA shops were actually opening up all over the place. The UFC just started their own convention. It was just mm -hmm. so much good stuff going on. It was hard to slow it down. And wait, I'm curious, like, so do you remember your revenue in 2006? You went from three to what? I'm curious that growth in 2006, seven. So about seven, we're doing 50 million or something. So you went like from that. three to whatever to 50. Yeah. That's awesome. Got it. Yeah. That's and incredible then, growth. And then and a lot to keep up on. Yeah. yeah it was crazy. Yeah. And, you know, you can imagine what it's like dealing with that kind of growth. It was, yeah. you're just hiring everybody. You're yep. hiring anybody who has any experience. We're hiring in-house attorneys. We're hiring, you know, COOs and CFOs and, you know, everybody in between. Accountants that, you know, it's like, okay, not just a CFO, but you have three accountants in between the CFO, yeah. you know, controllers and stuff. So you just have all these different people in place. And it was just out of control. It was a good time, though. I mean, we were, we, so we were also, the reality show was going on. We became the sponsors of the reality show. Yep. We became the sponsors of the UFC, the main and only clothing sponsors of the UFC. We had our own TV show. So they started doing our own show. So we had our, we had three seasons of our own show. We only ended up fil filming two because my partner ended up getting killed in 2009 by a drunk driver. All right. So up until that point, we were just, you know, everything was going our way. Got it. And so was that a big turning point for it? Was that with your loss of your partner? Or what, what was kind of the deciding factor of like, we're going to explore selling this? Where did that come from? Well, yeah, I mean, when my partner died, it was just kind of, I got a sour taste in my mouth for the business at that time. Mm -hmm. I just didn't want to be everything that I had done up until that point. We were bouncing. We were talking every single day, bouncing yep. these ideas off of each other. And it just didn't feel the same. You know, it wasn't. Yep the same excitement that we had had in the past. And so I just felt like that it was just a good time to look for somebody who could help come in and run the business so that it wasn't dependent on me being there all the time. Yep. So when we sold the company, we sold the company to a New York based firm 
who bought it and then we stayed on as another for another five years uh-huh. as president got it and how was that experience like you build this thing for 13 years and bootstrap it and build it up and then you now have a partner that you have to answer to that's some finance team how was that experience five years is a long time with a p backer it was not easy at all by any means. It was a, you know, it kind of got to the point where you want the best for your company and you want to make good decisions for them, but you realize that they don't want the same things that you want. You know, we spend money different. I was willing to spend it all. You know, when we were doing it, I didn't care if I made money. It wasn't yeah. about that. It was like, I mean, of course I wanted to make money, No, but, but it was yeah. about making things happen. It was about yeah. a result more yeah. than it was about the money. And so it was all about that. Just whatever it takes, we need to make this happen. And if that meant putting all of our money into it, then I'd borrow money to make it happen. But with them, it was, I mean, they do an amazing job with other brands. I just feel like that there were some things they didn't understand about what our brand was going through and those, you know, that growth that it was dealing with and that it needed we were in touch with our customers. I mean, we were more than just a t-shirt brand. We've always said that. If somebody sent us, hey, look at this tattoo. I just got tattooed on me. You know, I love you guys. You guys are the best, man. You guys changed my life. I mean, those are the letters we'd get from people. Yeah. So I think it just, they just didn't quite understand the gravity of what we were doing. Yeah. And that's typical on the finance side. So 2015 comes around. Was it a big celebration? Like five year? was it a five-year like agreement or did you just stick around for five years? It was a five-year agreement. Cool. So when you were done, did you just take... I'm curious what happens after that. So that was 2015, right? Right. That was 2015 when I left, yes. And did you go take a year vacation? Like, what was the next... What happened after that? Yeah. I mean, we were kind of... You know, so I met my wife. Well, we started dating a little bit before, I think maybe 2013, right Uh around there. And so... We were traveling around, you know, because the the UFC took me everywhere anyway. So I was all yeah. over the place. I was flying sure. to Japan and China and Germany. And we were meeting with the troops in Iraq and Afghanistan and Germany. And so we were, we were just flying all over the place, doing different events for the UFC. And when I met my wife, you know, I was, I was taking her, I wanted her to come with us. So during that time, we started kind of formulating different things that we wanted to do. So I was kind of like my part of my head was like, I wanted to start doing other things. I started to feel like, okay, I'm not going to ask for a re-up of my contract or or try to, you know, I didn't know what their intentions were, but I felt like that they had had some things in place. I wasn't doing a lot for them. So it was, it was, I felt like I wanted to do more, but they wouldn't let me they were great people mm-hmm. and they very smart people and, and had done a lot with they buying lots of brands or building a great company, but it was just, they didn't want to do what I wanted to do. You know, we, right. we definitely weren't on the same page as far as like how I wanted to infiltrate money into the brand to really build it and take it to the next level. Yep. Got it. So when you left, did you guys have an idea, you and your wife have an idea of r- jump right into something? Cause it happens. I've seen entrepreneurs that have their big exit and like a week later they're under the next company. So what happened right after you were out? Yeah. Well, I had, I'd also started a company called grip knife and mm-hmm. met simultaneously with a guy that I had met and we had patented this foregrip for an AR 15 that pulls out into a knife. Uh-huh. And so we're the we're a patented foregrip for an AR-15 as like a backup weapon for yeah. either law enforcement, military, or home defense. Yeah. 
And then me and my wife had been talking about doing a podcast. So we were like, hey, let's, let's do this podcast. And we were really excited about doing it. But, and we were traveling all over the, the world at this time. She was doing a lot of photo shoots and stuff. And so we were going to Spain and Ibiza and Cannes and, you know, just doing all kinds of cool things. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about having kids and she couldn't have kids or she felt like she couldn't have kids because she'd been trying to have, she had been married before she was coming out of a marriage mm-hmm. and they couldn't have kids. So she was kind of, you know, I had, I have kids previously. And so we were kind of sad about that because we wanted to have kids and we got pregnant. And so she ah. had, yeah, so we had, we had a little boy and that was pretty exciting for us. So it kind of put the podcast on, on hiatus for a second, but we decided to start another company called Billionaire Collectibles. Mm-hmm. And this was just born out of we we were both kind of collectors and her mom used to own an antique shop and I was a big collector of like Star Wars and different things that I was collecting. And I also collected these like historical documents, which are like documents from Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. And so what we started doing was getting these documents with one of their famous quotes and we would marry them together in like a framed piece of art. And we That's would sell cool. these. They're great for like entrepreneurs that are like want to be inspired by people of the past, you know, who inspires them, you know, who inspires you, like who inspires you, like who's somebody that inspires you, like somebody uh, from the past, like an entrepreneur, inventor. Yeah. I mean, you said it, Abraham Lincoln, I think that Tesla, Westinghouse. Um, I mean, imagine holding a document. I have this beautiful document by Nikola Tesla or, or Lincoln, but you know, this, this 1908 document by, by Tesla, Tesla documents are really hard to come by. And this one sells for like, for fifty thousand dollars, mm-hmm. it has his uh, laboratory at the top. He's asking for some parts that he needs for his for his laboratory, and yeah. uh, you know, signed by him at the bottom. Just a beautiful document. That imagine holding this document, knowing that Nikola Tesla had held this at one time in his life, and yeah. you know, wrote his name on the bottom. Just it, it's kind of especially like when you, even Lincoln, you know, thinking about Lincoln, what was going through his head when he's holding, you know, writing this letter to his friend or, you know, writing a commission letter that you're holding this document that he once held in his hand. So it's a, it's kind of a special moment for entrepreneurs, people, especially us as entrepreneurs. I think all of us as entrepreneurs kind of, we're a little more in touch with ourselves and in touch with our feelings and our thoughts and manifestations and quotes and so I think it really means, I, I mean, it means a lot to me and maybe not every entrepreneur gets it. No, I, I agree. No, I definitely get it. That's awesome. I mean, that's a, it, I don't know. I like that better than just a random piece of art, even though art's great too. Like something that has true gravity in history, I think is awesome. Yeah. That's how we, and so that's, and you've, you're still working on that, right? You're still building that? Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, we, we sell to a bunch of people. We're mostly private. You know, we have private relationships, networking relationships with people. We're not like, we don't sell a ton online. We sell most, it seems like we have an online presence, but most of our sales comes from just connections and networking and people who know us by from past sales, a lot of return customers, a lot of our entrepreneurs that buy stuff. A lot of, we have celebrities, a couple of big celebrities, some sports stars, one team owner. You're just a lot of really good people that have business. They're all entrepreneurs or businesses or sports stars, and they get something from it, you know, from from being that close to That's the closest you'll ever get to Abraham Lincoln holding that document. And it does something for them. You know, it it gives you energy. Yeah, that's exactly it. Motivation and energy. That thing sitting on my wall in front of my desk, reminding me to get to work because there's people that worked way harder than me before me. 
Absolutely. I like it. So it. last two questions for me. First, what's next? What do you think? Where, where are you going? Is it to focus on this? Is it to keep building your family? What do you think is coming next for you? Yeah, I mean, me and my wife, are, we're looking to do something, man. We're antsy. We have this, you know, the billionaire collectibles, it's not like a scalable business, really. I mean, it kind of is, but it isn't. You know, we enjoy doing that. It's kind of a hobby that just started making money for us. We just, because we showed it to a couple of people and then we just started, they wanted to, oh, we want one. And, you know, it's like anybody you show it to, they want one. So yeah. we showed it to a few people, they wanted some. So we started making them and it just kind of just became kind of a hobby that we were flying all over the world, picking up these different pieces. I'm, say, I'm not going to make you blow you up on a podcast, but I'd love to know how you get, you know, all access to all these cool things. Oh, it's just auctions and different okay. places yeah. that we know have them. We just picked up Etor Bugatti oh, piece cool. yeah. and found by the founder of Bugatti yep. really cool piece that we got from Germany you know just like these places these things are hard to find but you find them all over the world yep and so that was fun for us but we feel like we want something that we can scale and so mm -hmm. we're looking to do something I don't know if it's a course I'm not sure what it, you know we're we're looking we're helping a lot of people in our in with our podcast Mm -hmm. um, which is an entrepreneur for it's, it's for entrepreneurs with kids. And so awesome. we interview on different entrepreneurs in the world who have kids and, you know, it's kind of a different, do you have kids? Not yet, but I'll be there soon. I was going to say it's, I think I start to get, get ahead of the education. <laughs> yeah. I mean, or, or, or thinking about having kids. We always yeah, say we're unmarried and we're definitely, are, we're going to have kids. Right. So there. it's a different life. You know, it's life changes. Your focus changes a little bit, but you don't, you still want to make it and be successful. And you want to all of a sudden you want to build this great family. You want to have great kids and you want to have a great business. So dividing your time becomes a skill set, and yep. it's, and there's a struggle there too. So we try to help people work their way through that. And uh, we have a club on Clubhouse too called Entrepreneurs yep. with Kids and our podcast called The Pretty and Punk Podcast, Entrepreneurs with Kids. And so I, it's going to be something around that. We're not sure yet, but it's going to be something around that. I like it. That's awesome. Well, if I can ever be helpful. And the last question, which speaking of helpful, what's one piece of advice you'd have for that person trying to achieve their dreams? Like, you know, what's something that you don't think people hear? Everyone knows work hard, et cetera. But like, what's that one thing that you think really got you to where you are that most people wouldn't think of? Well, I would say, you know, I mean, the one thing I'd say is I really truly believe in just envisioning your goals and thinking, I mean, it sounds, sometimes it sounds so cliche to just think, you know, manifesting or thinking about your goals or really, you know, having a vision for what you want your life to look mm -hmm. like, you know, it sounds a little corny, but it's, it's, I'm telling you, everything that I ever envisioned for my life came true. Mm -hmm. And so I can't just shrug it off and say that it just happened, you know, or that I made it happen that way, because I really didn't many times. I mean, I can remember saying that I wanted a girl who was like, spoke another language or was from didn't live in this country, you know, just kind of like something different than mm -hmm. because I just wanted kind of a different type of life. You know, I came from this yeah. small city, and I just wanted a different type of life. And my wife is Hungarian, speaks fluent Hungarian. I wanted, uh, you know, I talked about how I was going to build this company and how I wanted to live across from the water. I live right across, I mean, that's all I stare at is water all day long. So awesome. I'm right across from the water. You know, just everything that I'd ever envisioned for my life, building our company being huge and successful, all those things I had thought about way before they happened. I can remember driving right in front of me here on PCH thinking about one day I want to you know, live by the beach and who are all these people that live up in this hill? How are they able to afford this? How are they able to do this? What did they do? 
and having all those thoughts run through my head and, and thinking one day I can, I, I, if they can do it, I should be able to do it too. Yeah. And it's, and, I think it's that visualization. Then you can start figuring out step-by-step, step, but you have to have a finish line identified. It's kind of the idea. And there. don't quit. You know, it's yeah. not about like, it's so easy. Everybody is going to come against huge problems and difficulties and there, those things, they come with the territory as an entrepreneur. You, sometimes it's the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. You'll yep. have the hardest time you've ever had in your life. It's easy to go get a job. It's easy to go work nine to five and do what people tell you to do. That's easy stuff to do. The hard thing is, is when you're dealing with the hardest time of your life and getting up every single day to take on the next day. I mean, as you said, working four years without making a dime. Oh, you know, dude, I, I mean, I, I, I think of there's a great story about Howard Carter, who worked for like 12 years looking for King Tut's tomb yeah, and not having any small wins. I mean, at least as entrepreneurs, we get little wins along the yeah. way. You know, it's like, oh, I'm on the I'm on the television show yeah. or I just got on a podcast or, you know, um, this guy just bought a thousand dollars worth of product or, you know, or I just got in this store, whatever it is, you have these little wins all along the way. What would be so hard for me is to do something like that, where you're this guy who's, who everybody's telling you you're crazy, that yeah. there's no more Kings in the Valley yeah. and that you're, Whatever you're doing, there's already people who search the area that you're searching now. Yep. And you're there for 11 years trying to find proof. Yep. But he stuck to his guns and he found the biggest treasure that's ever been found in the history of archaeology. Yep. And I think that's exactly what it is, is sometimes with big risk comes big reward with that much hardship becomes the biggest reward. It's like, it almost equals out, you know, if you're going to do an easy, easy to do business and it, everything's, you know, kind of a layup and you're able to, you know, scale that without problems, then, you know, your rewards usually about equal to that, you know, it's not that great for the person who goes through that big hardship. That person is, you know, is going to come into something great. Agreed. Well, Dan, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on Hawk Talk. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Eric. Of course. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts, all month-to-month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.